Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Our guest today is Carlos Tanner. He's been studying ayahuasca for almost 20 years, and he's the director of the Ayahuasca Foundation. Welcome, Carlos. Thanks so much for inviting me to be a part of this show. I really appreciate it. Let's start out with a little historical background. What led you to begin studying ayahuasca almost 20 years ago? That's a complicated question, isn't it? Uh, I guess I always had an affinity for the mysteries of life. And um, I became uh, interested in psychedelic use in high school. And uh, I took to it like very, very quickly. I was definitely enthusiastic about it and in college I started studying philosophy I started reading uh, authors like Carlos Castaneda and eventually Terence McKenna Uh, Michael Harner's book The Way of the Shaman had a big impact on me that was when I first learned about ayahuasca and um, I had it as the kind of the top of a list of things that I would like to do was to experience an authentic ayahuasca ceremony in the Amazon rainforest. I eventually found myself in a really bad way and I had a career job after college and you know was on paper successful but in my private life I was kind of spiraling downward into an opiate addiction and um, I was using heroin sometimes before going to work and have this kind of secret addiction that not many of my friends knew about, but that was definitely a big detriment to my life and eventually culminated in me waking up in my car underwater because I had blacked out behind the wheel while driving home from a bar that I had been drinking at as well as taking drugs and um, managed to climb out the window before my car completely sank into a river at which point I realized that my addiction had gotten to a, a, a very dangerous level and that I would need to do something drastic in order to save my life. And as synchronicity was, would have it, I received an email shortly after that from a friend who was in Iquitos, Peru at the time, telling me that she had met two guys that knew a shaman who drank ayahuasca and that she was going to attend ceremonies with this shaman and wanted to know if I wanted to fly down to Iquitos and accompany her to go to these ceremonies. I had just had that near-death experience and I had just made a declaration to make a drastic change in my life so I really felt like this was a sign from the universe helping me to accomplish that goal and so I accepted her offer and I flew down to Iquitos, Peru in May of 2003 to attend ayahuasca ceremonies with a shaman named Don Juan and it totally transformed my life. I never did heroin again and uh, during that time Don Juan invited me to be his apprentice because he said that it was my destiny to follow this path, the path of a healer and I agreed with him based on my own profound personal experiences in those ayahuasca ceremonies and so I accepted his offer and I returned to live with him and his family in Iquitos, Peru in January of 2004. I lived with him for four years and then in 2008 
I decided to form what is now the Ayahuasca Foundation. Tell us uh, uh, some more details about that first ayahuasca experience when you traveled down there to Iquitos with your friend. Well, I think the most important detail I can say is, you know, based on what I just did to set up that trip, when I got on the plane to fly down to Iquitos, I wasn't going to try ayahuasca. I didn't have a hope that ayahuasca would be helpful for me. I knew. And and that was because of the way I had interpreted the experiences. Um, you know, I really felt like that email and the timing was not a coincidence and that there was something, you know, indescribable at work, like an omen uh, that I needed to follow in order to reveal my destiny. You know, that was the, my mindset. So when I went into that first ceremony, I had true faith that this would be a profound transformation in my life. And and I think that's a really important detail because it was my mindset and and therefore that mindset guided my experience. Now, my first experience was not pleasant at all. I was not uh, given any preparation advice. I didn't have any communication about ayahuasca with anyone that might have been able to recommend, uh, you know, any lifestyle changes. Not that I would have done them anyway, but uh, so I was using drugs like right up until the ceremony. I was uh, taking Valium every day while I was traveling just to Peru. And um, so I was very polluted when I went into that first ceremony and I had a crazy, like really, I would say terrible time. Um, I didn't, I couldn't tell the difference between, you know, reality and, and what I was seeing in my visions or the effects of the ayahuasca. I was so scared, you know, I was terribly frightened. My visions were very dark of like demons and, you know, really like uh, frightening stuff. I, I, at one point was crying in the fetal position outside I threw up like 15 times I you know it was not fun at all Um, but again thankfully in that ceremony there this was not a ceremony for tourists even though I you know was a tourist I was attending a ceremony that was for local people and one of those people that was participating in that particular ceremony was the chief of the Achwari tribe. Uh, I didn't know that at the time, but I knew that he was a very impressive person, to say the least. He was dressed like an indigenous chief or what one might imagine one to look like. And he was a very impressive human being. And while I was crying in the fetal position outside, laying in the grass in uh he came out and he certainly wasn't in any uh, uncontrolled way or, you know, his emotions were totally fine. He was in complete control. Uh, I was a mess and he was not at all. And that was a revelation in itself. But then he saw me laying in the fetal position crying and he waved me in. He, we didn't speak the same language, but he waved me to like come back inside. And he was so impressive that I immediately got up and you know dusted myself off and, and went back into the ceremony. 
But I also recognize that this wasn't ayahuasca in in the sense of that's what ayahuasca does. That it, I recognized it to be my personal interaction with ayahuasca, and and that was really important because then I began to shift my perspective to look more inward. Instead of blaming ayahuasca for the experience I was having, I began to look at the root causes of what I was doing to contribute to what essentially was a very terrible experience. And and that was a huge step forward in my understanding ayahuasca. So when I came back to drink, well, first I did come back to drink a second time in a, in another, a second ceremony. And that was a lot to do with that interaction with the chief of the Atrari tribe as well. Had you begun the introspective work that you just referenced about looking at what within you was interacting with the ayahuasca in order to create the demons and the discomfort and the fear and so on? Uh, to some extent, yes. I would say it's like an ocean of introspection in, in terms of what's possible. So I was starting to scratch the surface, I guess I would say, but I was really looking more at the physical elements of it. You know, I, I could obviously recognize that I was coming in a heroin addict. I was coming in with a very polluted system and um, and that most likely contributed to it. But one of the biggest lessons or the insights was about fear and about how my fear was shaping my interpretations. And so I, I, I guess I, I like learned a lot. I, I also, you know, stopped using drugs at that point. So during those next three days, I was eating healthy foods and you know, I started to like really have a motivation to take better care of myself because I didn't want to have the next ceremony be anything like the first. But more importantly, I went into the next ceremony with a mantra that was, I'm not going to be afraid. And uh, I actually coupled with that was the idea like that. I'm I, tonight, I'm going to be a man. You know, I, I, I kind of imposed this concept of, of what it means to be a man onto this Atrari chief who was so impressive to me. And so I, I wanted to emulate that. And, you know, I, I, it, it affected like the way I sat and my posture and, you know, my attitude and just those feelings. I was doing my best to uh, embody that, to be a man and, and to not be afraid. And, and that had a massive effect on me. Um, now, you know, right did, off the bat, did, my second ceremony started with a very, what could have been a very um, scary situation, but I, I, I said, I'm not going to be afraid in my mind. And, and then it turned into something beautiful. And the rest of the ceremony was beautiful. And I, I really feel like it was beautiful because I wasn't perceiving it with fear. So are you saying that telling yourself not to be afraid was sufficient in significantly reducing the fear without digging in and getting behind what was causing the fear or what the root cause. Just saying, uh, uh, don't, uh, don't be afraid, sort of a, a self-cheering uh, was sufficient to get the job done. 
Yep. I mean, that's really how it felt. I should say I had an affinity for psychedelics for a number of years. So, you know, taking a psychedelic substance and having a psychedelic effect was something that I loved. So, you know, I guess it was really the specifics of the psychedelic effect of ayahuasca in that ceremony in the Amazon that what had created the fear and so I, you know, I don't want to just say to some, for, for someone listening that maybe has never taken a psychedelic, oh, just say that you're not going to be afraid. Of course, I would recommend to do that. But I guess in my case, like I knew that I loved psychedelics. I knew that I had had, you know, beautiful and magnificent experiences with mushrooms and LSD and substances like that. And, uh, and, and I think be, so behind that was you know, kind of uh, maybe a deeper knowledge that I actually did love this, the potential of, of the experience sure. of ayahuasca. I can relate to how somehow you talked yourself out of being afraid of the psychedelics. I, I don't quite grasp yet how telling yourself not to be afraid would diminish personal fear in general. Well, maybe I can help you. Um, Please. The way that it happened was very uh, confirming, I guess, or reassuring. So, you know, I I was saying it to myself, I'm not going to be afraid, you know, as a reminder, like, hey, you know, don't be afraid this time. And the very first vision I had, and it's hard to describe like exactly how the effects of ayahuasca are other than to relate it to perhaps dreaming, because it's so real that it, it just seems like it's real. It's, it, it really feels like, and maybe it's actually the, the, the reality of it, is that your perception allows you to see things that are not normally visible. And so you see things that you can interact with that are always there, but are just invisible to you. And by that, more specifically, I mean spirits. And so a spirit of a man walked up to me at the beginning of the ceremony. I had drunk the ayahuasca. I was sitting, waiting for the ayahuasca to take effect. And a spirit of a man with a wide-brimmed sombrero walked up to me. And he began to transform into some sort of like hideous creature. And I said, I'm not going to be afraid in my mind. But that is how you communicate, I suppose. So the, the, the man instantly turned back into his original form as if to say like with an expression like, oh, you're not going to be afraid. And then he took the, just the top part of his uh, sombrero off and out from the rest of his cap flew all of these amazing little creatures that all dazzled me right in front of my eyes, like intentionally dazzling me with uh, functions, like with, with little abilities and that they were just, I was just amazed by them. And, and so because I was so quickly rewarded, my statement that I wasn't going to be afraid was recognized by the person I spoke it to. And then they transformed their behavior 
to not want to scare me, but instead to dazzle me, then I was able to confirm that, yes, I wasn't going to be afraid and that, yes, my fear had been the cause of my detrimental interpretations in the first ceremony and would not be interfering with my interpretations in this ceremony. Does that make sense? Well, it makes sense. It's remarkable because... I think so. It's quite remarkable because if I were to say to my patients who come into my office and say, and I say to them, how may I help you or how may I serve you? And they say, well, I I have a lot of... uh, anxiety and a lot of fear and I want you to help me with the fear and and I say to them well tell yourself not to be afraid and whenever you get afraid tell yourself not to be afraid I don't think that answer would go over well uh, to, <laughs> to my patients I really don't I think they they might think I'm sort of I don't know what they would think, but it would not be pleasant, perhaps. You know, there's a there's a joke in a movie, an old movie with Mel Brooks, very funny fellow, and uh, it's called The 2,000-Year-Old Man. It may be a record also. And in it, he plays a psychiatrist, this uh, Dr. Halvanish. And he tells a story about uh, uh, this patient comes in, and, and he's got this problem. And his problem is that he, he obsessively and compulsively cuts paper. He just sits and cuts paper all the time. And he looks at this Dr. Halvanish and he says, well, tell me, doctor, you're a famous doctor, you know, tell me what to do. And, and Halvanish looks at him and says, don't cut paper. Don't cut paper. <laughs> Just don't do it. Don't cut paper. Well, that's what this sort of reminds me of, you know. Tell yourself, don't be afraid. It's not necessary to be afraid. But as silly as that sounds, and how silly I think it would be if I used it in the office, you have a remarkable story of where it actually worked, which tells us all that even things that sometimes might in many cases be silly as a tool for growth in some cases it works and it works extremely well and that's part that's what i mean when i say that your story is remarkable it's it's worthy of 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 note well i appreciate that i do want to point out a very important distinction no one told me to say that you know so you know you told yourself you told us you told yourself even beforehand, you would say to yourself, you know, stop being afraid. I heard that. Yeah. Right. So it was my own, my own motivation, my own intention that right. was being expressed. It, right. So then... So I do feel like when it comes from within, it does carry more weight than if someone were to Then somebody else externally. says, stand up straight, your posture's bad. Uh, so the second ceremony was then a positive one. How many, and and then how many more, although the first one was positive, even though it was negative, because you got a lot out of it. So how many more did you experience as ceremonies did you have on that trip before you left 
and went back and spent four years with Don Juan? A total of five ceremonies. Five. But if I can just say one more thing about the, the first ceremony, because it is important, like, while, you know, even though I was really terrified and, you know, like I said, I was crying in the fetal position, not typically a behavior that one would have in a pleasant experience, but, but even then I was fascinated. There was an underlying fascination that what I was experiencing was possible. You know, I would look around and I would see all these people that I knew weren't there when when the ceremony started. You know, like I even though my interactions with them were very confusing and causing me fear because of the confusion, I was still just so fascinated by like how amazing it was that I could have this experience where I, you know, I, I was aware of myself. I knew where I was and yet here were these beings, these, these other people, but that I, I, that were not like at that same level of reality that I normally would assign to a person. And it was all fascinating and terrifying, but that fascination, I think definitely carried me as well. Um, you know, so there was this underlying fascination. If I could just figure out how to not be terrified, the fascination would be the highlight. Yes. And and that is how it played out in the next ceremony. Thank you for adding that. That, that was an important piece of information. I have a question about this spirit person with the hat that came to you. When okay. he was standing in front of you, did he appear as though he were... A hologram, like you could no. see right through him, or did he seem to have material density, like a body, an actual body in front of you? Yeah, I mean, the word actual, I guess, gets a little fuzzy there, but um, it did look like I could touch him. Okay, you but know what, yeah, but you're familiar with holograms that are, you know, light shining on particles that creates but you can see through it. That's not it. You couldn't see through him. Well, I guess that's the debatable part because he wasn't as solid. Uh -huh. You know, I could I could tell that he was made of light. Maybe if there's some word between those two, yes. you know, um, like where it was holographic, but yet I felt like I could touch him. And I maybe see. I should then go on to say what happened in the second ceremony because Please. that is kind of right what you're talking about so in the second ceremony i was sitting um and you know just experiencing the ceremony uh, and i felt a hand on my shoulder and so you know i like anyone would i think you would i looked over saw there is a hand on my shoulder it belongs to a man who was standing i was sitting in a chair and he was standing with his hand on my shoulder, the way that you might if you were posing for a photograph or showing support. And I looked up at him, I could feel his hand on my shoulder, but at the same time, I could tell that this was not, uh, not a person like I am, you know, like he wasn't all real and um, not, not solid, but solid enough for me to feel his touch. And uh, right at that moment, 
as I'm just kind of marveling this phenomenon, you know, like I kept saying, so real, like, you're so real. Like, I can't believe like how real this is. Like, I know you're not real, but man, is it real? Like it was so, you know, uh, amazing to me. And at that moment, my friend who was in ceremony with me is sitting across from me, called out to me, said, Carlos, I'm looking over at you right now. And it looks like there's a man standing next to you. And I said, yes, there is. I'm looking at him. And, but I said, but it's okay. He's a good guy. You know, I'm looking at someone. We can make a judgment as to whether we think someone's a good person or a bad person. The fact that he had his hand on my shoulder, the expression of his face, you know, all of the things that we would normally use, I had used to come to a conclusion that I wasn't in fear of this person. And, and then she said, are you sure? Because it's freaking me out. And I said, yeah, I'm sure. And, you know, at that point, she can see him. I'm looking at him. I can feel him touching my shoulder. You know, what, how more real could this be? So I put my hand out. I shook his hand and I asked him what his name was. And when he told me what his name was, I instantly recognized him to be a very important person from my youth. Uh, my mother's best friend, who was my godmother, uh, had a son and he was 10 years older than me, but we just had some special connection. So I would go over to his house and spend the night. And when I was just like eight years old, and uh and he would he and i would collect worms and then we'd go fishing at like five o'clock in the morning together and just the two of us and you know i really looked up to him and then uh my mother had told i hadn't seen him at you know he we were such far apart in age so he had uh gone to college and joined the military and you know i, I just never saw him again uh, after like age 10 or something but um my mother had just informed me the year prior that he had died and um, that he had committed suicide. And, and here he was. Now, I, I definitely wasn't thinking about him, you know, but once he said his name and then I recognized him, I didn't recognize him right away because he was like in his third, he looked like a person in their thirties. It wasn't like how I remembered mm -hmm. him as a teenager. And, but I recognized him once he told me his name and and then I, I mean, I don't know if you can possibly imagine what that would be like, but I mean, my ideas, my concept of what I thought I knew was now like cracked wide open. Anything was kind of possible at this point. So I knew he had committed suicide and, and I asked him, uh, well, I must have heard somewhere that if you commit suicide, then you're stuck in purgatory. And I somehow tried to connect something of understanding how he could be there with me now. Maybe he needed help because he was stuck in purgatory. So I asked him, do you need my help? And he laughed. He thought that was pretty funny. And he said, no, you need my help. And, um, and that was an incredibly profound moment for me in my life, but definitely in making the decision that this really was a path for me in my life to be a healer. And, and that was when I started to talk about my experiences with my friend, because 
I was having experiences like that. And I thought everyone was. But when I started talking to people that were in the same ceremonies as me, I realized that they weren't having experiences like that, that they were seeing colors and shapes and things like that, but they weren't having direct interaction with spirits the way that I was. And I didn't talk to the Achwari chief or, you know, I, I was just talking to some of the other participants. And and the, and so when Don Juan in the third ceremony told me that this was my path and that I had a gift for this work, I began to understand, like, I think that I might have a special gift, my ability to see and interact with spirits and navigate this other dimension that's made possible through the use of ayahuasca and ceremony. Quite an interesting story. That connection between suicide and purgatory is an interesting one. I'd be on the lookout for what, what else, whoever sold you that story, might have sold you to go along with it. I doubt if it's a one You've never heard that? Well, from religion. You know. Yeah, that's what I, I must have picked it up from, from somewhere like yeah, that. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. If you picked it up from religion, I'd be on the lookout for whatever else was sold along with that story from that religious group. Because that story, well, did, sure. that, that story didn't come as a single story. There are other stories of, 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 of well, what I consider, you know, voodoo nonsense that probably came along with that story of, of, of suicide and purgatory. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the important part was I was in the presence of an experience that was completely unraveling my concept of reality <laughs> right and at, and so in the in the like unraveling i was now open to any any concept any thought that might have you know maybe maybe the priests are right you know maybe the the guy on the, the homeless guy is right you know like anything became possible at that point because yes. clearly everything i thought i knew about life was now going to need a reevaluation. Yes, good for you. Good for you. And I love I love your way of saying it. Anything is possible. It's all it's all right. possible. Indeed. Okay, then that was just number 2 and you had 3 more to go before you went home. That's any, right. Yeah. Any, anything you want to report on those 3 before we move on? Oh man. I mean, there's so much so much. I don't know. I, I'm writing a book about it. So, um, you know, okay. when I publish that book, I will try to make sure every single detail is there. Please uh, do. To me, you know, of course, like my personal experience, um, that original uh, journey to, to the Amazon to experience ayahuasca, clearly massive change couldn't be a bigger effect on my life and in, in, in terms of changing the course of my life completely because I moved to Iquitos, Peru and lived in the Amazon rainforest for 16 years. Um, but... Oh, wait a second. You just said something that... At first I thought I heard you say you went back and studied with him for four years, but then that got extended to 16 years. Right. Well, those last twelve, I didn't live with him. Yes, but I, I stayed but, in. I, I but stayed, you stayed in down Kito's there. Peru. Yeah. Okay. Give us a a little 
a little summary, not too long, but a, a brief summary of four years with a ayahuasca kundero. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I always, to this day, I refer to Don Juan as my teacher. Um, and I learned so much, but, but he wasn't the type of person that sat me down and gave a lecture, you know, it was a joy to have that kind of naturally unfold, which wasn't often, but there would be occasions when the time was right. And he would just speak for several hours about this complex science of plant medicine that, that he was practicing and that I was hoping to learn more and more about. And, but the reality was that I was maybe, maybe apprentice is a better word. Um, I was, I was allowed to be in his presence all the time. So, you know, I lived in his house with his family. Literally so, for the know, four, I, for the four years, you literally lived in his house. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's fa And then how often did he do a ceremony? Twice a week. Twice a week? Two, on Tuesdays a year-round basis? Yeah. We're talking about 100 yep. ceremonies a year. Correct. Yeah. So in four years, you sat in on 400 ceremonies, roughly. Well, not quite, because I, I didn't, I did go home. I did, like, you know, go back and, and visit my family. I see. So... I don't know what the number was, but, but, but three hundreds, hundreds, twice a week yeah. he does it. Wow, what a schedule! How many people in each ceremony? Uh, maybe a maximum of fifteen people, but usually like between eight and twelve. Quite. But he he um, he didn't have like a, you know, we just did them in his family room, like of his house, right, and. Uh, when I first was there, it was like a, a shack, you know, it had a dirt floor and, um, you know, it was like pretty much the epitome of, of shack. <laughs> it wasn't, I was, you wouldn't call it a family room, but while I was living there, I was trying to support him the way, uh, any way I could with financially. And so his house, um, we put a cement floor down, you know, we like kind of built up the house, put a second floor on the house and, um, and he got, a uh, some chairs and a television set. And at that point it really was a, a family room. And then hilariously, like oftentimes with me, his kids would be watching the Simpsons and then we would turn the TV off, pick the TV up and move it out of the room and get the, that room ready for the ayahuasca ceremony. So sometimes people would show up early for the ceremony, always locals, you know, just like people from the, the nearby neighborhood or community. And sometimes they'd show up early. And so we'd be watching The Simpsons just it happened to be that time of, of broadcast. And then they'd put the TV away and we'd have the ayahuasca ceremony. Okay, take us over that four-year period to the composition of the groups. What percent locals, what percent tourists as the four years progressed? Yeah, that's a good point, actually, because about two years in... Um, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to support myself 
for very long if I didn't create some sort of income. Uh, and so I had been speaking to him and I set up a website to advertise for people to come. And we built a little guest house attached to the house that had two rooms um, with some bunk beds so that we could start taking some some retreat participants, essentially. I, I like designed a program so that people could come and pay to stay at our house and, and attend ceremonies and receive treatment. Um, and so at that point, this, the, it kind of went from nearly 100% locals to 50-50 um, if we had a program. But almost every single time there was a ceremony, I mean, maybe sometimes there was only two or three people, but almost every time there was a ceremony, there were there was a group of people that would come. But they would, like, he didn't charge for a ceremony. It was all donation-based with locals. And um, and so he, he wasn't making any money. You know, people would come and drink and they would like literally give him a chicken or something. Um, and and so I, I was kind of appalled because here was this person who, who had a talent and a skill set that was so valuable in my eyes. And, and yet he was living like in destitution, you know, in, in, in such extreme poverty. We didn't have running water. Um, it, we didn't have electricity when we first started. When I first started living there, we didn't have running water for three years. Um, so, you know, it just was like this is this is a person who who is capable of doing things that very few people can do, and yet he is not receiving the compensation that he deserves for that work. And and so that was a real motivation for me to try to increase his comfort level and, and especially to be able to take care of his family financially. Is he still alive and practicing? Unfortunately, no. He passed away on July 4th last year. How old was he? Not very old. I mean, I don't think. I believe he was 68 years old. No, that's quite young. What did he die of? Uh, a lot of complications. He was an amazing man. I would love to write his biography or to have someone that maybe knew him even better than I did write or a collaborative effort. He was a remarkable person, one of the most incredible people ever. Um, not only was he a curandero, but he wasn't indigenous. Uh, far from it, actually. His grandparents were from China, India, Italy, and Peru. So this like right off the bat, like a bizarre combination. And his grandfather, who was Chinese, was a, a an herbalist. So he had this like lineage of herbalism, but Chinese herbalism. And then his grandmother was Peruvian. She was a vegetalista, a, a, an herbalist um, in, a, in a South American tradition. So he had these two like really fascinating plant medicine lineages coming together in his own ancestry and and then he traveled all over the amazon he you know the reason the the chief of the achuari tribe was there is because he had lived with the achuari tribe for three years and and so when they had health issues in their community the chief came to seek him out to, to seek his his guidance and his advice as to what to do about their their community's health issues um 
but also he was Peruvian. You know, his, he was born in Peru and um, he, as a Peruvian, he joined the military and the timing happened to be that, that way that the, the Vietnam War had broken out and the United States was struggling hard to fight a war in a jungle that they weren't prepared for. So they made deals with Peru to have Peruvian military go and fight for the U.S. because they were better equipped to fight in the jungle atmosphere. And so he signed up to go fight in the Vietnam War, which he did. And he received a Purple Heart when he was injured. And, and unfortunately, he doesn't have a lot of good things to say about his treatment, as if the U.S. didn't really care about the Peruvians and kind of sent them in first uh, to, like, take the fire, you know, to, like, learn where the enemy was, not really caring about the lives of, of the Peruvian soldiers themselves. But he was so unique because his grandfather was Chinese. So he spoke some language that was so close to Vietnamese that he really confused people. He didn't look American because he wasn't. So he was almost captured by the Vietnamese, but they let him go because he could speak in Mandarin. And they were just like, I have no idea what to make of you. And so they let him go. And he, you know, came back and recuperated in uh, in Canada and then in the U.S. and then saw American culture, you know. So by the time he was back in Peru in his 20s, he had been all over the world, which was not a common thing for someone who's from the jungle. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and so, yeah, he was just a very, very unique person, a really, really special, special person. I, I feel such a honor what a blessing it, it was and still is in my life to have been able to spend time with him. I hear that. Tell us now about the Ayahuasca Foundation. How did, what is it? When did it begin? What is it doing? When, what's your connection with it? Yeah, thank you. So, um, so like I said, we had started a, a program where I was uh, offering like the opportunity to, to live at our house and, and, you know, attend ceremonies and, and receive treatment from Don Juan. I would assist with translations and explanations. And, um, and we had a guest who wanted to give a donation to Don Juan who didn't have a bank account. And so I said, well, and she wanted to write a check. And I said, well, you can write the check to me when I go back to the US on my next visit, I, I can cash it and then I'll, I'll bring back the money and give it to Don Juan. And she said, um, can I write like Ayahuasca Foundation or something here so I can write it off on my taxes, my donation? And I said, sure, I don't know, okay. And, but that was like Ayahuasca Foundation. Ah, yeah. And so that was the light bulb uh, that maybe I could start an, an organization. And, uh, and so in 2008, I met uh, the woman who would be my wife, who is my wife, and she was a lawyer. And um, she was able to help me to go through the whole process to establish a nonprofit organization. And, and then in 2009, we like formally established the Ayahuasca Foundation. And we started operating in February of 2010. Um, and 
what the centerpiece of, of what we offered was and still is to this day, a course that I designed an educational course, because like I said, um, you know, there was no structure to my own apprenticeship. It was very fluid. And unfortunately, I, I yearned for that structure. And I, I, I wish that I could have learned more faster. And I felt like if it was, if it did have structure, then it, I could have. And I knew that because I was taking my own notes. I was videotaping. I was making audio recordings. You know, I was using all the tools that I had access to as an American. And, and after three years, I had, I had this collection of materials. And I wondered like, what if, what if someone had handed this to me when I arrived? Like, the day I arrived, they're like, here's, you know, here's all the materials you'll want to, to use. Man, I would have learned so much in such a shorter amount of time. So that was the light bulb for me to, to design a course this way so that if other people were, you know, on a similar path as me, I could make it easier for them, that I could teach them what I had already learned in a way that they could learn it much faster than it took me and with fewer mistakes, hopefully. So that was the, uh, the inspiration for the course I designed, which was the, the centerpiece of, of the foundation, uh, which is still going on today. In fact, we have a course going on right now. They went back in for their second half of, of their course today. Uh, it's an eight week course. I call it the initiation course. And uh, we're in our 48th course. To, uh, right now, this year, we'll do our 49th course in July, and then our 50th course will take place this October. Uh, we've had over 700 students do that course. And now some of those students have gone on. We've been doing that course for 12 years. So some of those students have now gone on to open their own centers and have their own practices and their own communities. Uh, one very close to you uh, is in Oakland a group of students that now uh, operate ceremonies and offer retreats out of Oakland, which decriminalized ayahuasca, and also one in New York and one in Arizona and one in Texas and in Florida. And that's just in the U.S. They're all over the all world. Those, so in all those places, like those, states have, those states have legalized uh, uh, plant medicine or not? No. Well, Oakland, you can no. talk about since it's legal. What's the name? Tell us the name. Yeah, the Church of Neuerau. Thank you. And now you also have a one-month course, don't you? That's right. That's what your daughter did. That's, That's right. That's what I was about to say. Evacheska took the one. That's how I heard about you from Evacheska. She took the one-month course, and yeah. I believe she yeah. took ayahuasca 10 times during that month. Yep. I mean, I believe there's 11 ceremonies, but she didn't attend one of them. Um yeah, the four-week course was, well, we, I should mention, we, we don't just offer the eight-week course, and we didn't just offer the initiation course even from the beginning. Uh, it was always my, my I, I don't know, my baby kind of, my motivation to form the Ayahuasca Foundation, but we also had shorter programs. So we had an 18-day retreat as well as the initiation course. And... Um, and what, what I began to see in the initiation course is that there were people that were signing up to take that course who were not really fulfilling 
the intention for it. They weren't actually interested in learning about the science of plant medicine, but they just wanted to have a very long healing process, like a very long healing retreat. Yes. And, and so they weren't, they were kind of causing a discord because they weren't going to the lectures. They weren't that interested in learning the material. And yet they were with people that that's why they were there. And really that's why the course was created for, for the people that wanted to learn. Yes. And these people had more personal uh, benefit desires Understood. rather than like to, to, to give. And so the four week course was kind of uh, my way of providing what I felt they would want but also putting educational elements into it because even those people would demonstrate tremendous healing because of the educational aspects. You know, when you learn how healing takes place, then almost inevitably or automatically you start to put that learning into action with yourself. And so the educational aspect of our program started to get put in more and more to all of our programs, whether it's our 10 day retreat or whether it's our eight week initiation course. But the four week course really began to model both of those like a fusion. So it's really a two week retreat and a two week course blended together into a four week program. And I love that program. I mean, now I feel that's probably more my baby than the eight week course. Um, it's more of a, a more recent uh, creation. It's been around five years now, but I really want to see that as the future of medicine. And so what we're doing now is offering those educational courses and healing retreats. But for the last five years, we've also been hosting ayahuasca research that was funded by the British Medical Research Council originally. But now we've con uh, managed to secure five years of funding from a private charity in the U.S. called the Grant Town Foundation. And... Um, and so we were able to publish the research that we that was um, collected and, and, and conducted at our center in a journal called Frontiers in Psychiatry uh, in June of last year that was published. And that got a lot of uh, publicity. So an, an article in Forbes was written about it. And uh, that was really like helpful for us to be able to continue that research and then also to start a new program. Uh, so most likely next year we'll open a new center in Costa Rica, which will be a certification program in ancestral psychedelic therapy for therapists to learn the indigenous or ancestral paradigm and understanding of health from that perspective to incorporate into their practice as a therapist. Uh, and please that will be, be based be on the four week course. Please be sure and keep me posted on that, uh, that program in Costa Rica. Okay, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, that one's going to be a really special program because the, the, there will be a very similar program to four weeks. And then there'll be an additional four weeks after that, where the therapist take part in hosting a 10 day retreat for veterans who suffer from PTSD. And the, the therapist will then be able to apply what they learned in their four week training to work directly with a veteran who's going through a psychedelic therapy session or retreat and be able to 
immediately like put into practice what they've been receiving in their training and then there'll be a follow-up but those veterans their uh the cost of their retreat will be covered by the therapist tuition so the veterans will be able to receive a 10-day ayahuasca retreat for free and the therapist will receive the certification and the experience of working directly with a veteran uh using the the techniques and the methodologies and ideologies that we train them in excellent how do you vet people for your programs? We have a, an, in, well, there's two different programs for sure. So the, the eight week course you have to apply for, it's a lengthy, a very lengthy uh, application. And then I personally review all those applications. So we accept 15 students. I, I accept 40 applications. And then I review those 40 and select the best 15 candidates from those 40 applications. Um, that review process is very different, I would say, than the healing process. I'm trying my best to, to feel out who I think has a gift or has a calling or it is their path uh, to become a healer. Um, when I accept someone, I immediately schedule a call with them so I can have another face-to-face -face interview to try to make sure that I feel still feel the same way. Um, whereas the retreats, it's first come, first served, but you do have to fill out an intake form that goes over medical history, medical issues, things of that nature. There aren't very many red flags, uh, so almost always probably 98% or 95% of the people that do register, um, I just send them back a confirmation letter. Uh, but if I do see a red flag, then I might schedule a call to go over it, or I might just refund their deposit and, and just say, well, I'm sorry, but I think you should, I don't think ayahuasca is the right medicine for you and, and make a recommendation to try a different modality. In these hundreds of ceremonies now that you've participated in, have there been any fatalities? No, no. Well, that's wonderful. Definitely not. Well, that's, that's, a, that's an important question and an important answer because people want to know such things. And you've got a, a great deal of experience with now thousands, hundreds if not thousands of people and no fatalities. That's a very important piece of data. I agree. I, I should say that when I was living with Don Juan, I did witness two people die, although not in ayahuasca ceremonies. But Don Juan was a true doctor of his community. And unfortunately, sometimes people would bring someone who the hospitals had said there's nothing that can be done, you know, basically had been told, like, just go home and die at home. I mean, unfortunately, our, our hospitals do the same thing or they t say to go to a hospice. And and those people would sometimes show up. And uh, and and Don Juan, you know, one of the times, because there were two, two deaths that I witnessed, you know, one of the times Don Juan was like, no, don't, like, please don't come here. Like, go home, you know, but uh, you know, not everybody is ready to have their father die or, or their you know, loved one die. And, and so they were insistent, like, please, you know, try to do something. So I did witness two people die in, in our house. 
But I, you know, to say that they died because of ayahuasca would have been terribly inaccurate. And they didn't die in ceremonies either, but they did die both time. And man, that was like, I bring it up just because the seriousness of this work, you know, it's one thing to have it be safe. and, And of course, like people that are flying down aren't, you know, on their deathbed, you know, obviously. So the people that are coming to to do programs that we offer at the Ayahuasca Foundation is quite different than the local community that's just walking over to to our house or to Don Juan's house. But the reality of the seriousness of the work, you know, that that these are people's lives. You know, that this isn't like a game. And this is life and death for some people. And even the people that have come down to do our programs, it's still been life or death. It's just not maybe immediate life or death, but someone who has a terminal diagnosis, they're dealing with a life and death concept all the time, even though it might not happen. You know, and, and so it's still life and death and, and it still needs to be honored in that way. And, and I, you know, one of the most, um, satisfying things about the work that I do is to receive that hug from a person who tells you that you saved their life. And I can imagine that you've probably received a couple of those hugs and, you know, there's, you can't really put a price on that. That's right. That's right. Those are the best hugs of all. Anything you want to add, Carlos, before we conclude this interview? Oh, man. I mean, there's so many things to talk about and, and I know that we just went in the direction that flowed. But um, I would recommend that if anyone is considering to drink ayahuasca or even to take some step forward towards psychedelic therapy, to visit the, the Ayahuasca Foundation's website. I just wrote an article this year called Ayahuasca Retreat Preparation, Participation, and Integration. And even though I specifically wrote it for people that were going to come to do a program at our center, I do think there's a lot of valuable insights for anyone that's looking to do any type of healing work with psychedelics, especially with ayahuasca. But I would recommend that anyone that that might be thinking about it to to read an article like that so that they can optimize their experience through better preparation, better participation, and the most important part, to understand the mechanics of integration.